your Bible with you, I would ask you to go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to do my best this morning, guys. I'm not feeling well, so pray that I have the strength to speak today. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11 today. Now, if you recall, last week we talked about fear of man and the gospel. And fear is one of the primary tactics that the enemy uses to crush the advancement of the gospel and to hinder the growth of the church. Fear is crippling to anyone who gives into its lies. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So last week, as we looked at verses 6 through 10, we saw the glorious result of resisting that fear of man. If you remember, and it's still on the board, Paul's resistance to fear those who seemed influential resulted in unified partnership, right? The result of it was beautiful mercy ministry. The gospel was boldly and strongly advanced because Paul resisted that fear. And the key to the unity that we saw last week, the fellowship that was extended to Paul from the apostles, the key to all of that unity is the primacy of Jesus Christ and the gospel of his kingdom. You may remember the quote that Dan sent out a few weeks ago from A.W. Tozer. Tozer writes, Just like 100 pianos that are all tuned to the same tuning fork, so 100 worshipers together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. As soon as our attention drifts off of and away from the dominion and the power and the glory of Jesus, Onto the opinions and the perspectives of man, the disunity and the damage are not far behind. And so this morning, as we turn our attention to chapter 2, verse 11, we're going to see the damaging effect of fearing man. We're going to see what happens when you turn your eyes away from Christ onto other people. Let's read our text together. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's take a moment to pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the truth in this text. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning for the overwhelming peace of your presence. Lord, we come this morning to hail you as our king, to look away, to gaze upon you alone this morning. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever Lord, I pray now, Lord, would you come and open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to understand how damaging it is to fear people. Lord, would you awaken us this morning out of fear into the abundant life you've called us to. In Jesus' name. Well, having read through that text, you guys immediately see the conflict that's taking place between Paul and Peter. It is stark. And as you read it, you have to stop and sit back and ask yourself, what in the world happened in Antioch? How did things get to the point that these pillars of the church these fathers that we look to as the foundation of the early church, how could they get to a point where they're publicly standing at odds with one another? To begin answering that question, I want to just take you on a, a little trip through Peter's journey. I want to take you back to that moment in John chapter 21 on that quiet shore early in the morning by the Sea of Galilee. The disciples had already seen Jesus in his resurrected body two times by this point. But he wasn't walking with them every day, day in and day out, as he had before. They'd seen him twice. And so you can imagine they're overjoyed, they're excited, they're overwhelmed that Jesus is alive, but they're also sort of uncertain of what to do next because he's not there. I'm sure there was some fear and some anxiety as to what they were supposed to be doing. And on this particular occasion in John 21, they did what they knew best, which was to take the boat and go out on the water and try to catch some fish. Now, you guys, I think, know this story. But it was on this occasion, as they've had this long night of catching nothing, that this stranger on the shore calls out to them, cast the net on the other side. And as soon as they do that, that long night of catching nothing immediately turns to this large net full of fish. And that stranger on the shore is revealed to them as the Lord Jesus. And you remember, Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims to the shore. He's overjoyed and thrilled to see his Lord on the shore. But what happens next? Jesus has the fire. And he says, come and sit with me. Bring some fish. Let's eat breakfast together. So they sit there by the fire. And I'm sure the memory was still painfully fresh for Peter. It was just a few weeks earlier 
that he sat by another fire, warming himself in the courtyard. Gripped with fear as people began to recognize who this man was that had been with Jesus. And what does Peter do by the fire? Three times, not once, but three times, he vehemently denies knowing that man, even to the point of cursing the idea of it. Imagine the despair that Peter felt in that moment as the rooster crowed a second time and Jesus looks out into the courtyard. Peter recalls the words of Jesus about his denial. Seriously, put yourself in those shoes and think about the despair just overwhelming him as he hears that rooster. Imagine the shame and the disappointment now welling up inside him as he's so excited to see Jesus and then he sits down by the fire and the memory comes back. The shame and the disappointment of denying his Lord. And Jesus begins to ask him, not once, but three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I, of course, you know I love you. But do you really love me more than these? And, and Peter, you can imagine, just filled with sorrow in that moment. But rather than berating him, rather than scolding him, rebuking him, making him feel the pain that he caused, what does Jesus do? He's so gentle, he's lowly, and he's kind, and he reaffirms his love for Peter. He, re he restores Peter to his calling as one who follows Jesus. He restores Peter to that place of being the rock who confesses Christ, upon which the church is going to be built. And he says, just as he had several years before on that same shore, follow me. Except this time, Jesus makes it clear, following me will cost you your very life. Now, as you move from the end of John's gospel into the book of Acts, it is so clear that that moment on the shore was life-changing for Peter. Think about it. His restoration as one sent by the Lord to build the church took on this new level of zeal and boldness as the Holy Spirit anointed the church on Pentecost. This man who was once terrified of the Jewish leaders, even renouncing the idea that he knew Jesus or spent time with Jesus, that same man is now standing before the temple proclaiming before all the same leaders, Jesus is the Messiah who you crucified. He's the Messiah. And that fear that held Peter now gave way to all these spirit-led, spirit-empowered signs and wonders through which thousands came to Jesus. Even the fear of arrest, persecution, and his own death couldn't silence Peter. Remember Acts chapter 4? He says, we must obey God rather than men. We have to testify to this Jesus. He couldn't be silenced. And Peter was even, as we know, arrested at least three different times. He was beaten for preaching this gospel. And two different times, at least, he was miraculously set free from prison. It's astounding enough 
that Peter would go from such fear to such boldness to preach the gospel before those Jewish leaders. But even more than that, remember Acts chapter 10? He receives a vision from the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles. If you remember that chapter, Peter says to Cornelius, it is not lawful for me to even enter your house. Not only was Peter bold to preach the gospel to the Jews, but he was faithful and obedient to take that gospel across the strongest ethnic boundaries to the Gentiles where he saw again the Holy Spirit fall and many signs and wonders were accomplished. Just like Jesus and the woman at the well, he was so kind and so faithful and so bold to cross those boundaries to take the gospel to those who need Jesus. The evidence for Peter was undeniable. It was really clear at this point that the gospel was for Jew and Gentile both alike and that this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection was to be received by faith alone and that it was accompanied by the power and presence of that comforter that Jesus had promised. And it's not long after that encounter with Cornelius that Acts tells us of some men who, and this is just the way God's sovereignty works this all out is amazing. There were some men who were fleeing the persecution that arose over Stephen's death. Now, do you remember who was responsible for persecuting and putting to death Stephen? You remember there was a man named Saul who was standing by as they killed Stephen. Now, this persecution spreads people out through the region, and these Jewish men take the gospel to the city of Antioch, where they boldly, Jewish men, preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and there the church in Antioch is born, where people were called Christians for the first time. This is incredible, because then what happens, Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem, another Jewish Christian, He's sent to Antioch to strengthen, to lead the church there. And who does he recruit to help him? He travels to Tarsus to find a man named Saul who had recently come to faith. And he brings him back to Antioch. This is incredible. It's during those years in the city of Antioch where the church is strengthened, the church is growing. Paul and Barnabas take their missionary journey through the region of Galatia, as we're, we're talking about today, where the gospel, again, goes out across cultural borders, boundaries, all of that stuff, and the church is growing. And then they come back to the city of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas begin to grow into being pillars of the church for the Gentiles. And at the same time, Peter's in Jerusalem. The Lord is raising him up as a pillar in the city of Jerusalem to the Jewish believers. And it's during those years, most likely, <clears throat> that Paul, as we talked about last week, took those two journeys to Jerusalem to set his gospel before the men who seemed influential. That's the apostles in Jerusalem. It's during this time, Peter, Paul goes up to them and says, this is the gospel I received and they say, this is surely the gospel that we too have received. And they extend the right hand of fellowship to him. And it was agreed upon by all parties, Peter, Paul, John, all the guys there, 
that the gospel Paul preached and the gospel Peter preached were the same gospel. We're saved by faith in Jesus alone. And here we are in our text for today, where we find this confrontation in Antioch. Now, from the book of Acts, we don't have a precise timeline for when this took place. And there's actually no other record of Peter's visit to Antioch. But most likely, this would have happened after Paul received the right hand of fellowship and before the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts. Now, look at verse 11 in Galatians chapter 2. This is the record that we do have. Peter came to Antioch. As Peter was visiting the city of Antioch, he had no reservations about fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians there. Keep in mind all that we just talked through. Peter had no qualms about sitting down with the Gentile Christians. Verse 12, the second half, says that he was eating with the Gentiles. This was known to everybody. He was okay with it. Remember, devout Jews believed that it was unlawful for them to even enter the house of a Gentile, let alone to sit down to a meal where there was unkosher food. This was unlawful. But Peter, along with Paul, along with Barnabas, these other Jewish believers, were resolved that no person, no ethnicity was off limits. Everybody was to receive the gospel from Jesus alike. And Peter was confident that the fellowship and the unity of the church must be enjoyed together in unity with Christ. Now keep in mind that in the early church, these meals, many called them love feasts, were where the Lord's Supper took place. And so for these guys to have fellowship at the table together was to actually also be participating in the Lord's Supper, the ordinance that the Lord established. So these meals were incredibly important to the early church. This was where the Lord met them in spirit and poured out his grace upon them that they may continue in endurance. But then this unnamed group from Jerusalem shows up in Antioch. Look at the beginning of verse 12. He says, certain men came from James. This would have been James, the brother of Jesus, who is now leading the church with Peter in Jerusalem. So these unnamed men show up on the scene, and it seems as though they came specifically to attack what was happening there. Knowing that this is a Gentile church and knowing their views on circumcision and the food laws of the Old Testament, I don't think they came just to hang out for a good time. It seems like they came specifically to tear down. Now, we can't say for sure what their intentions were. We don't know their names. We can't see their hearts. But here's what we do know for certain. When these men arrived, look at the end of verse 12. Their arrival stirred up fear in Peter. When they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Last week, we saw that Paul's resistance to fearing man 
led to unified partnership and it advanced the gospel. But today, here, we see Peter's quickness to fear man resulted in disunity that undermined the gospel. Now again, we have to sit back and wonder, how on earth did Peter get to this place of falling back into fear again? After all those incredible signs and wonders that he had witnessed, all the testimonies of people coming to faith, both Jew and Gentile alike, even having received that vision directly from the Lord that you must go to the Gentiles, it's okay. You should not call them unclean. Peter, of all people, should know. He should be the one standing firm against this party of whoever these guys were. Peter should have been the one contending for unity in Jesus' name. Perhaps it was his most recent imprisonment. Remember in Acts chapter 12, King Herod beheads the other James, and the Jews were pleased by it, so he comes and arrests Peter. Peter is next on the list, but the Lord miraculously releases him from prison with the angel. Do you remember that? Perhaps that experience stirred up some fear in Peter as he remembered the words of the Lord that someone else will stretch you out. In other words, you will be put to death for my sake. Maybe that prophecy of Peter's martyrdom seemed just a little bit closer on the horizon. Maybe Peter's life flashed before his eyes when those critics arrived to find him eating with the Gentiles. Maybe the fact that Peter had gained influence in the city of Jerusalem made him a little bit more comfortable with that influence, and he was afraid to lose it. We just don't know Peter's heart. But the answer, this is how it got to that point. The answer, in the words of Peter himself from Acts chapter 10, as Cornelius bows before him in reverence, Peter says, I too am a man. Bold and brash as he was, a pillar in the church, one who seemed influential, Peter was a man. He was imperfect, he was incomplete, and he was given to fear. On the stormy sea, he took his eyes off Jesus onto the winds and the waves, and he began to flounder in fear. In the garden, he took his eyes off Jesus and looked to his sword for protection. In the courtyard, he took his eyes off Jesus and began to curse the idea that he knew this man. And now in Antioch, he took his eyes off Jesus again and drew back out of fear, creating a division in the church of Antioch. One moment of weakness and the damage was done. Just imagine Paul's perspective. Imagine his incredible conversion that we talked about a few weeks ago. He's so boldly preaching that the gospel goes to the Jew and the Gentile. He's been building this church in Antioch, eating with the Gentiles, saying, you too are a part of the people of God. The church is growing. 
And then all of a sudden, these out-of-towners show up, and the Gentiles are treated like second-rate. Imagine you're a new believer, a non-Jew in the city of Antioch. You've just come to faith, and you hear that Peter, a pillar of the church, is coming to town. Imagine how thrilled you would be to sit down for a meal with this man as he tells stories, no doubt, of spending time with Jesus. That would be amazing. And then these guests show up, and all of a sudden, Peter turns his back on you. That's a painful reality. The gospel was undermined, the unity of the church was compromised, and the name of Jesus was dishonored. So when you think about all that, you have to ask, what do we learn from this? What can we take away here and now from this situation? In the words of Shailin, I love this. If Peter and David could fall, shouldn't that be a wake-up call for us all? Here's a key takeaway for us today. I've already said it. I'm going to say it again. The fear of man undermines the gospel. Remember last week? Resisting that fear produces unified partnership, but fearing man undermines the gospel. When the word of God and the will of God become secondary to human opinions and agendas, the church will suffer. This is because the Lord designed the church. The way he structured the whole thing is to be tuned to the perfect pitch of his character alone. And to align yourself to the tuning fork of anything or anyone else means that you're bringing yourself out of tune with Christ. You're bringing yourself out of tune with his bride, with the people of God, as you get away from his perfect character. My littlest two children enjoy cranking the tuning machines on my guitar. Every time I pick it up after they've been around it, guaranteed it's going to sound awful. And that's because it's out of tune with any objective standard. And not only does an out-of-tune instrument sound bad, it doesn't create beauty, it's not really enjoyable to listen to, but ultimately, the instrument is ineffective in fulfilling its purpose. You can't take an out-of-tune instrument and accompany another instrument or a singer. It doesn't work. All that it does is creates dissonance and disharmony. As soon as we allow the opinions, the potential responses of other people to be the governing motivation for our actions, we're cranking that gospel tuning machine right out of tune from Jesus. We're just cranking away on it. And we see this here in the example of Peter. His fear of man didn't just affect his own heart. It affected everyone around him. Look at verse 13. And Paul writes that the rest of the Jews who were there acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas 
Think about that. Barnabas is the guy who put his own life on the line to bring Paul into the church community. Barnabas, in many ways, though Paul would probably never recognize him this way, was something of his mentor. Even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. And rather than strengthening the church in Antioch, rather than taking those Gentile believers out to the streets to preach the gospel together, Peter's visit ends in a mess, leaving Paul to pick up the pieces. Fear of man undermines the gospel. I want to mention three specific ways that it does so. The first one, the fear of man prevents the proclamation of the gospel. Let me ask you guys a question. What is the one and only strategy that Jesus implemented to build and expand his church in the world? What's the strategy? Anybody? Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. He calls witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to take the stand. And these witnesses are ones who have experienced the radical transformation of the gospel to then testify to the world of that gospel. And those witnesses, as they take the stand, just like in a courtroom, they confidently proclaim, here's the problem that I experienced, which is also the problem in the world, which is sin. The solution to our sin is only the forgiveness that Jesus offers through his death and the new life that he offers through his resurrection. And the evidence of that solution is my personal testimony of transformation that each of the witnesses have experienced. Think about the blind man in John 9. All I know is I was blind and now I see. There's the evidence. And the call then is for the hearer, the jury, to respond in faith and repentance. That's how it works. He calls witnesses. He gives them his spirit and power to take the gospel to the world. Romans chapter 10 is so clear on this. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the low-hanging fruit for the enemy. If you've ever watched any show with a crime uh, courtroom scene, you know this is how the enemy works. You silence the witness. If the enemy can silence your witness... He's slowed the advancement of the gospel, and ultimately, he has delayed his own destruction another day. The devil knows that Christ is going to destroy him. That's not a surprise to him. And he knows that the gospel must go out to the world before that happens. And so how does he delay his destruction but to silence the witnesses in the world? If you are in Christ, you have experience that transformation you have the testimony you are a witness and Jesus is calling you to take the stand 
He's calling you to proclaim the gospel of freedom that he won for you. But then we think to ourselves, okay, I'm a witness, but what if I share the gospel with that person and they get mad at me? What if I share the gospel and they get offended? What if they don't like what I say? What if I share the gospel and the person hurts me? But what if heaven is cheering you on in that moment? What if David is saying, sing the song? What if Mary is saying, waste it all, he's worth it? When we give attention to those fears, we cannot hear Jesus saying, this is how I save people. You are the plan. I work through you by my spirit and by my word as you're faithful to proclaim the gospel. If we let our fear of man determine our actions, we simply won't proclaim the gospel. The second way that fear of man undermines the gospel is by betraying its beauty. The beauty of the gospel is that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that, listen to this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus wants to show everyone for all eternity the riches of his grace in kindness to you. But the beauty of the gospel, it's broken sinners being transformed into the living temple where God's glory dwells. It's unclean, unworthy people being cleansed and purified to do good works, to serve the living God. But we betray this beauty. We mask it. We cover it up when our fear of man hinders us from living out that transformation in holiness. We put the bushel over the lampstand. Now this could happen in many ways. We could go on and on with all the examples of how we betray this beauty, but let me give you a few. Sometimes you find yourself in a group of people who don't believe what you believe, they don't live holy lives, they don't follow Jesus, yet we fear their rejection. We want to be accepted by this group of people for whatever reason. Maybe it's family members, maybe it's classmates, maybe it's coworkers. We want their affirmation. We fear their rejection. So we compromise our holiness to fit in. Either we don't speak up when unholy actions are taking place, or even worse, we participate with them. What happens in that moment is that our witness is compromised. The beauty of the gospel that we've been transformed from that into righteousness, it's, it's covered up. Now, another example 
you may have the opportunity to do good. Let me rephrase that. You always have the opportunity to do good. So this is one that we all face all the time. We can never run out of good things to do in the world. Amen? But maybe the Lord has put before you a specific way that he wants you to serve him, a good thing for you to do. Maybe that good thing is, I don't know, an act of hospitality to someone. Maybe it's sharing a word of encouragement with someone. Maybe it's writing a heartfelt letter of appreciation. Maybe it's just making a sacrificial gesture of kindness to someone. Maybe that good thing is even getting baptized. Maybe that good thing is standing in front of the church and sharing a testimony. Maybe it's praying in a group of people publicly. There's so many good things that the Lord is calling us to Specifically, things that display God's radical love, his radical hospitality and mercy. There are so many ways we can do that. But we fear how people are going to perceive it, don't we? We fear what people are going to think of us. Maybe I'm going to look too, too crazy, like a crazy Jesus person. I don't want people to think I'm weird. And let me say, I've said it before, this is one that I battle. This is something that I struggle with all the time. We fear other people's opinion of us. Maybe it's going to make them uncomfortable if I shout during church. Ooh, I don't want to do that. Maybe if I, speaking from personal experience, maybe if I go out to that crowd on the street corner and start doing radical gestures of hospitality and preaching the gospel to them, maybe they're going to beat me up. I don't know. I fear their response. I fear their opinion. And so what do we do? Instead of radically demonstrating the mercy and the love and the kindness of Jesus, remember the one who went to that well intentionally for that woman to save her, Instead of doing that radical demonstration of the gospel, we cover up the beauty of the gospel. We shroud it under the status quo of balanced and normal, distant relationship with some reservations. We just keep it at arm's length. The fear of man betrays the beauty of the gospel that way too. Now here's another one. Maybe you have been hurt by someone, legitimately, awfully offended by someone. And you know Jesus is calling you to forgiveness, but you fear that if you forgive them, it will automatically mean that you get hurt again. So you walk in bitterness and unforgiveness, forgetting that Jesus forgave you. And you betray the beauty of the gospel. And now here's one more. This is a common one. You've been walking in victory over a particular sin struggle. You've been doing really well. You've been strong. You've been walking rightly, experiencing freedom in Christ. But then you give in to temptation and you fall back into sin. You fear that confessing your sin before your brothers and sisters who love you 
who care about your restoration, who care about your holiness, you fear that they're going to judge you and be angry with you and hold it against you. You fear their response to your sin. And so you continue walking in your sin, driving it further below the surface, covering it up, hiding it, creating all sorts of deception so that no one finds out about your sin. The beauty of the gospel is the love of God displayed to sinners while they were dead in their sins to forgive them and give them restoration. And so when you walk in deceitfulness, hiding your sin, you're betraying the beauty of the gospel. All of these examples undermine the gospel. And this is exactly the hypocrisy that Peter demonstrated, and this is how Paul describes it. Look at verse 14. Paul saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel in Antioch, think about how the church there was started by Jewish believers going to Gentile unbelievers and preaching the gospel. The beauty of the gospel there was that Jews and Gentiles alike were fellowshipping together. They were worshiping together. They had community together. There was an ethnic harmony that could come from no other source but the gospel of Jesus. The dividing wall of hostility had been torn down. Yet, because Peter let his actions be governed by his fear of how others would respond, the gospel and its beauty were betrayed. The last way is the fear of man compromises the content of the gospel. What happens when our words aren't speaking the true gospel and our actions aren't demonstrating the true gospel? The result is that our witness is actually broadcasting a false gospel. That's what it is. Peter knew the gospel. Think about this. Peter had preached the gospel. Peter believed the gospel. He was there when the gospel happened. Jesus, or Peter got his doctrine straight from Jesus, so he was more on point than any of us when it comes to doctrine and theology and articulating the gospel. He knew it. But when those men from Jerusalem came to town, he did not speak up on behalf of the Gentile believers. He did not defend his rightful act of fellowship with them. He did not proclaim the true gospel in that moment that Jews and Gentiles fellowship together in Christ. His withdrawal, his actions, as he leaves the Gentiles to go be with these Jewish men, his actions demonstrated that there was still a need for separation. And his witness in that moment to the church of Antioch was compromised. In essence, Peter's actions were saying, these guys are right. Unless you are circumcised and follow the Torah, I can't eat with you. That is not the gospel 
that message has no power to save anyone. And so, as the end of verse 11 says, Peter stood condemned. He was wrong. His witness was compromised, and the content of the gospel was distorted. The compromising effect of that action by Peter is precisely why this was such a big deal to Paul in the letter to the Galatians. Remember, Paul had gone and he had presented his gospel to Peter to make sure that I wasn't running in vain for all these years, even though I know I'm not. I still want to take that extra step to lay this before Peter and make sure we're on the same page. And here Peter comes. Peter, who had affirmed and endorsed that gospel, who had extended the right hand of fellowship, now compromising it. The purity and the preservation, the protection of this gospel that Paul had received from Jesus was of so much importance to Paul that he had to say something. Notice again in verse 11, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Look down at verse 14. I said to Cephas before them all, the fear of man undermines the gospel, but loving confrontation protects the gospel. Where Peter failed to speak up, Paul did speak up, resisting that fear of man. Whenever the gospel is undermined, whenever it is polluted, whenever it's compromised, distorted, abandoned, this type of speaking the truth in love, this gospel confrontation, is the thing that keeps us on the rails. And this love, loving gospel confrontation is necessary. Keep in mind, speaking the truth in love. Paul probably wasn't as gentle as Jesus in his approach, yet Paul was so concerned about the right things. He spoke the truth in love. He spoke the truth in love to Peter's face. He did not gossip behind his back. He did not slander him. There was no social media, but if there was, he did not broadcast this complaint to the world without confronting Peter to his face. And he used the truth of the gospel as his criteria. He did not use his personal preferences. He did not use his opinions on the matter. He used the truth of the gospel as the criteria for this confrontation. And this is something that, in many ways, the church and at large, our entire society has lost. We love to complain about people to everyone else, yet our fear of man prevents us from actually confronting the problem in the correct way. But it's that loving confrontation that protects the gospel. And this is the connection point to Paul's whole letter to the Galatians, right? This, this isn't a letter explaining how to do confrontation. It's not a letter merely explaining what the fear of man is and isn't. The letter to the Galatians is about preserving the gospel. And here's the connection point. What happened in Antioch with Peter 
is the same thing the Galatians are facing where they are. And so we have to make that connection that as Paul is giving this example from personal experience, he's saying, church in Galatia, you must confront this. There is no other gospel. You cannot let this continue. It has to be cut off. We have to preach the gospel that Jesus gave us, which he lays out in verses 14 through 16. As he begins to convey the message of his confrontation with Peter, he transitions right into the rest of the letter. You almost can't tell. Is he still talking to Peter or is he not? I can't tell. Here's what he said to Peter before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how could you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others, are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners, as those others would be calling them. Yet we know, here's the gospel, this is what Paul's going after, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. And so he's going to repeat it. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you catch the point? We cannot be justified by anything we do or don't do. It is only through faith in Jesus who accomplished it all on the cross and then rose again to give us new life. This is the heart of the letter to the Galatians. This is the purity of the gospel. This is where freedom is found, everyday freedom that we all need. And this is going to set the stage for the next upcoming weeks as we continue in the book of Galatians. Now in closing, how do we deal with the fear of man? If, if we were all pressed I'm quite certain we would all say that we have given in to this fear of man many times, even this week. Am I right? We give in to the fear of man all the time. And when you stop and consider the real damaging effects of that fear, it's undermining the gospel. Jesus' message is not going forth to the world when you are walking in fear. That's a heavy thing. I want to take you back to the shore of the Galilee where that fearful Peter sits down next to the Lord and he says, do you love me, Peter? This is the excellencies of Christ, that he is so gracious, he is so kind when we come to him in faith and repentance. Would you guys bow in prayer as we close? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today that you would meet us just like you met with Peter. 
that you would come with your kindness and your grace, that you would lift the burden of fear from our shoulders. Lord, I pray that we would truly understand what it means that your perfect love casts out fear. Lord, that we would be people who are concerned above everything else with gazing upon you in your beauty, in your dominion, in your power, in your glory. Lord, that pleasing you would be the only thing for us. The fear of man is not going to disappear. As long as Paul was ministering, he was praying for boldness. As long as Peter was ministering, he was given to fear. As long as we are walking on the earth, fear will exist. And it's the perfect love of God that drives that fear out. When you look at the early church, how did the gospel go forth with such boldness? Because they asked for boldness and they were filled with the Spirit. Lord, I pray today that we would recognize how much we need the filling of the Holy Spirit to bring us through intense fear. Lord, we know that we can't survive fear alone. We cannot survive fear depending on our flesh. I pray that you would release us this morning Lord, that we would see how worthy, you of, how worthy you are of our proclamation of the gospel. That is what you've called us to as your witnesses. And Lord, I pray that we would be concerned with the beauty of the gospel, that we would uphold it in our character, in our holiness, Lord, that we would actually be concerned with holiness. And Lord, I pray that our content of our gospel would be pure, that it would be true, that it would be right, that it would align with everything you've given to us and nothing else. Lord, I pray as we <clears throat> we don't face the same Jewish-Gentile controversy that Paul did, but Lord, we stand in a society that says our gospel is hateful. Lord, we live in a world that says our belief system is terrible because we would ever say that someone has sinned. And Lord, how fearful it is to stand before someone who's saying that to your face. You are just a bigot who hates people. Lord, there is no way we can get through that moment without the Holy Spirit and the boldness that you bring. And so, Lord, we need you. We need you. We need you. Lord, would you clean us out and restore us just as you restored Peter? We need your grace, Lord. We ask for it now in Jesus' name.
here, and it'll start preaching. It'll, it'll demand that it has reasons for existing. Before you know it, what are you doing? But you're bending the knee to the preacher of fear rather than the shepherd of your soul. He loves you enough to banish that fear and say, watch out. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you one that will give life not only to you, but to everywhere you go. You'll be a shining light. And that's the hope. We stand with Jesus. We stand with all that he's accomplished for us.
encourage you, if, if you find yourself, man, there may be faces that are coming to your name that are in the workplace. I just can't speak to them. I just can't speak to them. I just can't get there. The best thing to do with, about that is to acknowledge it with someone else. Go to someone. Here's the fear I'm carrying. I really feel like the Lord's pressing me to say something to that person. Get it into prayer. Have someone stand with you in that prayer and watch God give you the boldness in the moment. See? We need one another. Like, we're, we're about to go out as fishers of men that we all are. But it's important that we would slow down enough to say, yeah, I got, I got people on my mind that I have a heart for. But in the moment, man, I just I collapse in fear. Let's get that into prayer. Let's get that before Jesus. He loves it. He smiles at it. And then he gives his spirit to give us boldness to that end. Raise our voices to speak well of him to those who are in need of that. <laughs> so may it be, after we're done here, if that's the case, specific people are coming to your mind, stop. Don't just rush out the door. Get those people before the throne of grace to someone else to do battle with the fear that's all too real in our lives. By way of benediction, Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Opposite of 